Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a scorching spring morning here in the capital is Scott Lenick. Um, Scott is the CEO of Neverbland, a leading digital product agency from right here in London. Um, Scott, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thanks very much. Absolute pleasure to be here interviewed and to uh, hopefully uh, give my thoughts and share those with, with your audience. Uh, thanks ever so much, Scott, again, for uh, taking the time to join us here. Um, I suppose we should address the elephant in the room here, and that is the fact that we are recording this in um, early June 2021. So even though the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic is certainly loosening as we look to move out of social restrictions, it is something that we are still very much in the grip of and have been for the best part of the last 14 months. So um, thinking about that and sort of the last year and a bit as a whole, to what extent has this pandemic affected you and affected your business, would you say? Um. I think it's affected it on, on multiple levels. I mean, if we go back to, to the very beginning, obviously there was uh, a huge amount of uncertainty on, on every level um, from a, a business continuation perspective, from a uh, health uh, perspective, from, you know, obviously both individually and, and the staff as a whole, and how we would try and kind of, you know, navigate um, our way through taking the advice as best as we could from from the government as to how to continue safely. Um, I think the first thing that we tried to focus on was obviously the, the safety and security of, of all of the team. Uh, we very quickly uh, moved to uh, to a home working um, situation. We were, we're fortunate in what we do in that our, our workflow is very well suited to, to working from home. I mean, pretty much all of us um, can can work quite well just with uh, access to our laptops and, and the internet. Um, so we moved to that that pretty much straight away. Um, I guess again from some of that uncertainty, you know, there was uh, an initial impact from a from a sales perspective. Um, but again, just largely, I think seeing through the uncertainty of, of what was meant to happen. But um, as the, the situation unfolded, you know, thankfully after three three to four months. Um, if anything, you know, there was um, more of a kind of surge in, in interest. Um, people were seeing that this was was not necessarily going to work, go away very quickly, and realizing that um, the, the the web um, and digital products were a really important way for which that they could continue to uh, to do business, and uh, and we got a lot more inquiries um, as a result. So, you know, in, in many ways, we feel, you know, we're, we're very grateful um, and, um, and a better, as insulated as you, you possibly could be from a, from a business perspective. But that's not to say that we didn't have a, a number of challenges, mm. you know, that we, we still have to face, you know, from a, from a personal perspective, from a, a cultural perspective, from a mental health perspective, 
ensuring um, that we were we were as well placed as we possibly could be to um, to kind of continue and, and, and to thrive uh, uh, amongst you know the, the midst of the pandemic that we were all trying to navigate through. Um, I think you're very right when you say that when you're initially moving toward remote working models and having to adapt out of necessity to what the pandemic has thrown at you, it can be difficult sort of adapting to sort of leading people from a distance and checking up on mental health when you're sort of not there in an office space together. And that is a little bit harder, isn't it? And you almost have to sort of adapt and change your own leadership style in a way, don't you, to address that? Yes. I mean, I think, again, it's something that, you know, we are very kind of collaborative um, as a team. Um, uh, we have a very kind of democratic structure. We always really, you know, encourage anybody from the team, regardless of, of their experience, to kind of to share their thoughts and get involved in, the, in helping to shape the business. And I guess there are a few things that, that we've done um, throughout the pandemic. Um, which I think have been really, really beneficial for, for our business as a whole. Um, uh, one of them is to really kind of evaluate, you know, the, the purpose of what we were doing um, and why. Um, and that really, that's actually led us on to actually applying to become um, uh, a B Corp, which is something that um, we did towards the, uh, the end of last year. Um, and we're still uh, um, going through the application process at the moment. Which it really kind of forces to really evaluate, which I think, you know, times of national crisis do, you know, what you're doing as a business, the, the impact that, that that's having on, on the community. And, and that, you know, by community, means, you know, the, the people that you're working with, the, uh, the services that the people that you work with offer to others, the suppliers that you work with, um, and the internal team. And, I think for everybody, I think it just had a kind of reassessment and reflection around around why we do what we do. And I think we all collectively felt that yes, of course, you know, being a business, you know, profit is, is important, it's imperative. If you don't make money you can't continue to, to kind of support your staff. But at the same time we all strongly felt that actually there needs to be a strong purpose behind what we're doing and to ensure that everything we do, um, from the people that we work with and the suppliers that we use and for the way that we treat our staff as a real kind of positive impact um, on the community. Um, and that that was a, a big driver in uh, in this application for, for people's status. I think um, from this period of self-reflection, certainly, every sort of business leader you speak to will have taken something away from this pandemic period, won't they? Something positive. So sort of thinking about that, is there anything you would say that you've certainly learnt from the experience of guiding Neverbland through this last um, 14 months? Um, I think one of the things, you know, is that how how adaptable that we can be and that things that we could always think we could never change, we actually, you know, can do. And that's great. I mean, we're, we're fortunate enough to work with, primarily to work with startups and scale-ups and, and businesses that are really trying to innovate. And if anything, that's kind of just really given me, you know, additional faith in, in the ability of people when they come together, you know, to be able to create solutions no matter what problems that they face. Um, and that we can adapt to different circumstances. And as long as we kind of work together and have a really kind of positive mindset, um, 
it's amazing how we can kind of transform what can be challenging situations and, and make the best out of them. And you mentioned earlier on as well that, um, of course, people were starting to really understand as they knew that the pandemic wasn't going anywhere soon, the value of digital products. And I think that as a result of the crisis, it's going to ultimately change in the long run, the way that business operates, the way we do business in this country, our working practices as well. And so it seems to be the case that as we move toward a more permanent, flexible working model, there are going to be opportunities for businesses like yours, aren't there, in this post-COVID world? Yeah, I mean, uh, 100%. Um, I, I, I think as we were talking about before, kind of like really embracing flexibility and, and really understand that ultimately that your your team and the people who work within your business are your business and therefore being able to kind of operate and organize in a way that, that helps them to get the best out of themselves um, and helps them to grow within the, the organization. Um, is the most important thing. It's far more important than where you work and the hours that you work. Um, and again, we've had to, um, you mentioned one thing earlier about, about trust. It's been you know, amazing to see that the more trust that you put in people, um, the more they tend to kind of repay that um, as well. Um, and if anything, we've probably seen some you know, increases in, in productivity and you know, general kind of well-being amongst amongst the team when we speak to speak to them as a result of this increased flexibility. Um, again, that doesn't mean that there aren't kind of I think important watch outs um, and you know mental health particularly. You know, is something um, that I think we're all becoming increasingly aware of, and it's, mm. it's important to ensure that there are kind of support uh, structures you know in place. To, to regularly check in and make sure that people are doing okay because, again, the flip side of having kind of flexibility, potentially, you know, working from home is potentially an, an increase in, in, in anxiety or, or social isolation from, um, you know, not being able to physically interact with, with like, peers and uh, in, in the same way that we used to. It's interesting that you do mention the uh, the mental health issue. It is something that's been greatly amplified by the pandemic. I think that is absolutely right. And um, we've been talking an awful lot at the Leaders' Council lately, not just about sort of anxiety and burnout among employees, but also among CEOs and business leaders as well. Because when you are sort of at the top of the tree and running a business, as it were, it's easy to get sort of drawn into that mindset that, Everybody is looking up to me for sort of answers and solutions at this time. I've got to keep it together, make sure that their mental health is where it should be. But sometimes when you're in that mindset, it's very easy to sort of forget about and neglect your own, isn't it? So when you are sort of in a leadership position like you are, Scott, do you find it easy to sort of stay, take a step back from that hectic business world and maybe recharge the batteries as and when you need to as well? Yeah, completely. I mean, you know, I think uh, anybody in a in a leadership position, you know, is very aware of the, the role that they play within the organisation. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're you're not a human and that you don't kind of respond to the circumstances in the 
same way that everybody else does and you have the same um, needs as, as anybody else does in the team as well. Um, and again, I kind of really encourage people to, to be open about um, how they're feeling and to make sure that they do have support structures in place. And whereas, yes, I think you know, anybody in a, in, a, in a similar position probably feels a, an extra degree of responsibility. Um, but uh, as long as you have structures, you know, whether or not that's kind of friends or family all of the structures and support structures within the workplace um, that helps you acknowledge when perhaps you do need a break or when you need to talk to somebody about something. Um, that just gives you that opportunity to, to take, as we say, a step back and get a slightly different perspective and, and just helps you to be able to, you know, look at any challenges you may be facing in a, in a, in a new light. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to, to look at, you know, if, if ever I do feel that there's a lot on my shoulders is rather than, you know, placing every, every issue I need to deal with on top of each other is to, to place them all out in front of me. So you're only ever dealing with, with one at a time. Um, but again, I think, you know, each person is different and the way they deal with, you know, strains and stresses. Um, again, I think one of the, the great things that certainly more recently has been, um, at least as being able to, to be encouraged to go and spend, you know, time out, outdoors, outdoors again, probably the safest place um, to be, you know, protected from potentially uh, getting getting infected or passing anything on. And uh, I think for a number of people I've spoken to as well is that they kind of really appreciate, you know, taking a little bit of time out each day. You know, maybe it's only for, you know, half an hour or 40 minutes going to war, getting some fresh air. Um, really helps to kind of, you know, clear the head and, uh, you know, reflect and, and hopefully, you know, when you're to, to dealing with the rest of your day, um, do it with a, a you know, really and, um, you know, ability to be able to, to solve whatever's put in front of you. Mm. I think that's very right. I think having that sort of work-life balance is so, so, so critical and it is going to continue being important as we move into the post-pandemic world and address exactly what the legacy of COVID is going to be for mental health. And just thinking about that sort of next 12 months in a little bit more detail now, Scott, just before we wrap things up, um, I'd be interested to understand where you envision the business going over the next year and where it is that you want to be this time in 2022 as we hopefully leave the pandemic behind and move out of lockdown? I mean, again, as I said before, I think we've been, you know, very, very fortunate in being kind of insulated um, as best as any business can be. Um, we've been lucky enough to actually grow the business over the, over the last 12 months. Um, and with the, the number of kind of inquiries that seem to be coming in, um, we're confident that that growth will continue um, uh, over, over the next year um, and hopefully continue to be able to provide, you know, employment opportunities for, for people and, and supporting, you know, other nascent, nascent businesses and help them to become um, kind of strong contributors to, to, to society. Um, but again, there's kind of other things we've been thinking about again, going back to some of the this kind of like purpose work, you know, we've really built around, uh, charitable associations, uh, particularly a relationship with a, with a charity that, that helps support, um, mental health, looking around kind of training, uh, our internal, 
be able to kind of recognize, you know, mental health problems, uh, both, you know, within themselves and within their family or within the workplace and to be able to kind of help them to uh, provide recommendations about places that they can go go for support. Um, so, you know, we are going to continue to adopt kind of flexibility uh, in the workplace. So, you know, we're, we're hoping that from a, a commercial perspective, that, you know, we go back to, a, you know, pre-pandemic position and, uh, and, and they just keep, keep going from strength to strength as a business. But I do think things will change uh, for the long term in terms of the, the way that we, we self-organize. Um, but I think, you know, as a result of that experience, we'll continue to communicate more, uh, be more, be more open, um, and to kind of, you know, really recognize, you know, the importance of a team and, and supporting each other. And uh, we think that, you know, businesses uh, that really kind of, you know, embrace that and, and build a very strong culture are the ones that will, will succeed. Um, and, uh, you know, as we move out of the pandemic into to hopefully, you know, uh, a period of kind of sustained economic growth for the, for the whole country. Mm. I think you're absolutely right. I think we certainly do need to keep those values very close to heart as we move out of the pandemic and into hopefully what will be a robust economic recovery. And I think it will be really interesting over the next year or so just to see how that plays out. And given indeed, Scott, as well, how eye-opening it's been having you join us on the show this morning, I also think it would be great to welcome you back onto the programme at some point in this next year, just to see how things are taking shape at Neverbland as well. And just discuss how the business is getting on. It'd be an absolute pleasure, Scott. It'd be a real pleasure for me as well, Scott. Um, I must thank you again for taking the time to join us on the show today. It's been such a pleasure having you. And also, since we're not quite out of the woods yet, but we're very close, just continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on. Thanks very much. Thanks to you too. It's been a pleasure for me to welcome Neverbland CEO Scott Lennick onto the show this morning. And coming up next on the programme, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett, who will be sharing his thoughts on the events of the last 14 months and what is to come. That will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is 
that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods.
including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S. and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. 
those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months 
when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about 
proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? 
I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.